It's time for another Ask Me Anything. It is, and we have some great questions from listeners. I was wondering if you could unpack the um, economics of divestment. Do the Republicans know that their economic policies are actually ruining our country and our economy and they just don't care? Am I missing something here? How do you reckon with this huge split in winners and losers? From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, where we tell you how the economy really works. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, Senior Fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Nick, it's time for another Ask Me Anything. It is, and we have some great uh, questions from listeners from around the world. Completely around the world, it looks like, from this list. Let's start with Ian from South Africa. Ian asks... Your point about economics being a narrative and not a science is a total mind shift. My question is, what is the easy narrative and title of the alternative to neoliberalism, the Chicago School, Milton Friedman, etc.? Pitchfork and progressive appeal to the converted and are primarily an anti-narrative, not a restoration story. We're still searching for something better, but I do think that middle out economics is the best answer that we have right now. And I think that middle out economics is an anti-narrative in the sense that you really can't understand something unless it's in contrast to other things. So I think the contrast is important. And I think middle out economics makes a lot of sense because it contrasts with the fundamental trickle-down narrative of right. the Friedman School. the I mean, you know, the basic idea at the core of the Chicago School, Milton Friedman, neoliberalism, market fundamentalism, is the idea that if the rich get richer, that is automatically good for the economy. Right, because markets, markets. Because markets, yeah. right? And that turns out, to be just false, that there's an insane amount of empirical evidence now that shows that that's not true and that the opposite is true, really, that the the more the middle class thrives, the better off everything is. Right. That the middle class is the source of growth, not its consequence. That's right. And, you know, when middle class families' incomes are rising— all sorts of amazing things happen to the economy, including increasing rates of innovation and increasing consumption, increasing political and uh, social enfranchisement, so on and so forth. So middle out economics, I think, is the, the best thing that we've yet come up with. And I think that it is really important to understand that economics is this weird mixture of science and art in the sense yeah, that it is storytelling. Both, that's right. <laughs> it is both theoretically an account of how the economy does work and also an account of how it should work. And also it it is all about 
persuading people that your story is right. You need a persuasive, compelling story. And it's important to remember, Ian, that neoliberalism was constructed as a counter-narrative too. Right. It was it was a counter-narrative to uh, Keynesianism, to what they perceived to be the, the growing democratic socialism in the West, and to the Soviet-style uh, socialism, communism in the East. Correct. So they constructed this counter-narrative that emphasized, I guess in their minds, that the classical liberalism, that the freer the economy is, the more prosperous everybody would be. And it was a very compelling counter-narrative that we wanted to believe, and we ended up believing it, and it didn't turn out to be entirely correct. Hi, this is Jordan from New York. My question is, do the Republicans know that their policies, their economic policies, are actually ruining our country and our economy, and they just don't care, and they're just greedy? Since the time of Reagan, I've watched Republicans voice their policy, and in 40 years, I see no evidence that it works. And even worse, they've convinced the working class that all of the hardships that it caused them are the fault of the Democrats creating an angry, misinformed mob. Why can't the Democrats see this and make their campaign about telling us that trickle-down is a lie and that putting money in the pockets of the people is the only plan for economic growth and that one more term of trickle-down might actually kill us? This seems like a marketable message. Can't you help them? Thanks. It's a great question. It's multiple um, questions. Yeah, it's multiple uh, questions. It's a multi-parter. Uh, let's start off at the top. Yeah. Do the Republicans know their policies are ruining our country? One of the things you learn about people as you get older is they don't believe uh, what they believe because they're facts or evidence. They believe what suits them or what makes them feel good. And the truth is that the responsibility for trickle-down economics lies with more than just a core of Republican adherents. Uh, Democrats for you know a, a full generation essentially fully embraced that version of market fundamentalism too. I truly believe that the guy we used to call the trickle-down clown, Paul Ryan, who was the king of trickle-down economics, completely believed that nonsense. Right. I don't think for a minute he believed that he was lying to people when he said that tax cuts for rich people created economic growth. And it turns out, Nick, that the reason why Democrats can't make a campaign about this is because fundamentally many of them believe it too. Absolutely. And then there's another layer of the onion there, which is, well, do they believe it because they're stupid or do they believe it because they're evil? And sadly, that's not true either, because if you went to college 20 years ago, even today, more or less, but certainly in the last 40, 50 years, and took a couple of economics courses from orthodox economics professors, they would have told you that that was true. And they would have dazzled you with a bunch of mathematics to prove that it was true. And so you would have left college believing in the same way that physicists offered you formulas like force equals mass times acceleration is true, that raising taxes on the rich killed growth was true. 
Right. And so you end up with an orthodox ideology that dominated policymakers thinking for a generation, both on the left and the right. The only difference on the left being that they saw more market failures occasionally and wanted to take the hard edges off trickle-down economics a little bit more than Republicans. But they still believed in the big trade-off. Absolutely. It, it, what what Absolutely. it was, you had on the positive economic side, how things work. Republicans and Democrats have generally been in agreement for the past 30 years. Yeah. On the normative side, Democrats believe that we should make more of a trade-off between yes. fairness and growth. Exactly. But that was the that was the only distinction between them. Right. And we've said this many times on the podcast that when we got to work raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, everyone we encountered on the left believed that we had lost our minds and that we were going to destroy economies by raising the minimum wage this much. From academic economists who theoretically were, were on the left to United States senators who were theoretically on the left. And that is because to a person, they were convinced that if you raised wages, it killed jobs. And that just is demonstrably false. And it's demonstrably false because the fundamental mechanisms that undergird neoclassical economics are also false. <laughs> and so yeah. there's another layer to this, which is that people believe what suits them. And if you're rich and white, this is a system of thought that has advanced your interests in astounding way over 40 years. And it is very difficult to come to terms with the fact that it is not true that you deserve what you have. And so, Jordan, we have been at work grinding political leaders to embrace this set of ideas, but you're definitely swimming up a giant stream of bullshit that has been created by the uh, academy that benefits a huge number of powerful interests, you know, a, a narrative that is driven by the people who, who benefit from that narrative. And so it is hard to press back against it. Yeah, I, I, I would add, Jordan, that, that, yeah, there's some bad people in the world. There, there's some bad people. There are sociopaths out there that are only in it for themselves. There are also people who just have been convinced that it's a social Darwinism, dog-eat-dog world, and I might as well get mine because if I don't, you know, somebody else will take it. But mostly what this comes down to is people believe this for the same reason they believe anything else, religion, whatever. It's how we make sense of the world. We're a storytelling animal. Ideology is a shortcut. And we use this all the time. You use ideology. I use ideology. We rely on these things to get through at life every single day. And it just turns out that this particular ideology isn't well suited to reality. Yeah. And less and less every day in an increasingly complex technological world where the only thing that matters really is your capacity to cooperate at scale and to, and to generate new knowledge. But a great question. Hi there, this is Drake from Austin, Texas. After listening to the show, I've become a lot more confident in my discussions with people regarding all of the trickle-down economic myths. One person who I have not had as much luck with is my dad, who is a classic conservative Republican. He doesn't listen to podcasts, so my question is, what books would you recommend to someone like him who has all of these misconceptions, but ultimately is 
pretty pragmatic when it comes to his beliefs and responds well to data. Thank you for all the work y'all do. I love the podcast. Bye. Uh, I've given this a lot of thought, Nick, and I've got a couple of books to recommend, both by former guests of the podcast. The first is James Kwok's Economism. Yeah, I would agree. That's a really great primer on all right. these ridiculous myths. He doesn't necessarily use all the same terminology that we do, but in terms of an accessible book that really steps the reader through what is wrong with orthodox economic thinking and how it has wrecked havoc on the economy, I can't recommend more highly James Kwok's Economism. The other book I'd recommend is Paul Krugman's Arguing with Zombies. It's a wonderful collection of his essays, plus some new material, a good mix of accessible narratives, some wonkiness, and also numbers. If Drake's dad is into numbers, he'll find a little bit more of that in Krugman's book than in Quark's. Thinking about uh, the, the problem confronting Drake and lots of other people, I often want to start with the emotional or psychological motivations that drive people's belief systems. And you know, the thing about economics that we all have to remember and continually remind ourselves about is that it is how we all rationalize who gets what and why. It's how we instantiate our social and moral preferences about status, privileges, wealth, and power. And the thing about neoliberalism and trickle-down economics, ideas like when you raise wages, it kills jobs, is that these are moral stories that enforce status constructs that some people just really prefer. You just, I think if you're trying to talk to somebody, you have to understand where they're coming from. And let's say you're a business executive that employs lots of low-wage workers, the story if you raise wages, it kills jobs, is um, an incredibly persuasive one to you because what it does is it gets you morally off the hook from raising wages, right? It, that's, the, that's, the, that's the thing that makes it so powerful is if it is true that raising wages kills jobs and by raising the minimum wage, we're harming the very people we're intending to help. And therefore, that policy idea is a bad, it's just, it makes no sense. You would just never do it. And that releases us from the responsibility of doing it. And so for, you know, a lot of people, particularly older white people who have very much benefited from the arrangement that exists today, it's not the data that uh, holds them to the to the to these old ideas, it's the it's it's a moral and and uh, social preference for the implications of these ideas, and so um, I think it what's really worth exploring with folks you're trying to persuade is why they believe what they believe, and just at least suggesting the possibility that one of the reasons they believe what they believe is that it it's super comfortable to believe that that it it feels good to believe that you know again i i know this because i used to believe this stuff and i remember how good it felt to believe that the rich deserve to be rich and the poor deserve to be poor and our station in life was all a consequence of the hard work we did you know and you know it just it just makes you feel good to believe that stuff so Anyway, you know, tax cuts for rich people don't create growth, but it is 
a fun thing to believe if you're rich, <laughs> right? You know, right. And they, and there are certain people, and and uh, I definitely believe that conservative people tend to be conservative because they are more prisoners of uh, this kind of emotion. Uh, they definitely want to believe that the better they do, the better off everyone else will be. And so, you know, that's the to me, that's the thing you really got to break through. And uh, I should say, Drake, if your dad doesn't want to read a whole book, then I suggest you send him to nickhanauer.com and there's a list of everything Nick's written and he can just click through and read those articles, all very accessible and informative. Goldie, we have a really thoughtful question from Stu from New Zealand. And he asks, what should the manifesto of the perfect political party look like? What are the absolute core principles that should be addressed? That's a great question. Uh, I got a, I got an answer, I think. Okay. And it is a derivation of what, what we think the maybe the number one rule of thumb of uh, economics should yeah, that's be. That's right. The golden rule is, of economics is to... Well, well I'm going to phrase it this way, that we say the economy is people. The more yes. people you include in the economy, the faster and more prosperous it grows. Yep. And I think that's true about a functional democracy as well. The country is people. Yeah. Pe <laughs> that, that should be our number one concern. We want our people to do better, that's not, right. not our capital or our, our businesses or GDP or any metric you can think of. That's right. And I think that the heuristic we use is uh, around the word inclusion uh, and that we don't mean it in this sort of soft, mamby-pamby way. We believe that because economic progress is the product of a feedback loop between increasing amounts of innovation and increasing amounts of demand, that the more people we deliberately, systematically, and intentionally include in our economy, the better it will work. Right. And, you know, what's interesting is that humanity, I suppose, is on an arc. The arc of history, I do think, uh, bends towards justice because it bends towards inclusion because inclusion is a necessity for increasing amounts of prosperity. The thing about inclusion is, is that anybody who's ever raised kids knows that getting them to be included as functional adults in society takes work. Right. right? It does not happen automatically. <laughs> it, take, it takes years of education and well, like training and grinding. socializing. And just grinding, right? right. You have to grind your it, kids. It, it's hard. It it's, is. It, learning is hard. Well, and just being responsible is hard and being motivated is hard. All of these things do not happen naturally. And so in the same way that parents need to be fairly deliberate if they want their kids to be reasonably high-functioning members of society. A, a society needs to be deliberate and intentional if it wants its citizens to be high-functioning. And so we, you know, we all have a huge stake in making the investments and building the structures that enable every single citizen irrespective of where they were born or in what circumstance, to rise to the level of their maximum capacity. 
And when you do that, you have maximized the potential in your economy. You know, our country will not thrive unless individual Americans thrive. And that's the game. And I, and I want to be clear, Stu, that this is not just moralizing on our part. This is this is grounded in science. On, yeah. on, on one of our earliest episodes, the physicist Cesar Hidalgo made the point that human knowledge and know-how is the only factor of production that can increase in per capita terms. And this is why I hate the word capitalism, because it implies that capital or capitalists are the the heart of our economy it's not it's people and it's people putting their knowledge and know how to work which is how we improve uh the lives of everybody uh, hi my name is prem rajgopal i am a sustainable engineering master student at the university of pittsburgh i was wondering if you could unpack the um, economics of divestment i know that divestment has been a powerful movement for things like divesting from apartheid but I'm just curious about the economics of divestment from fossil fuels, uh, what type of impact they make in the grand scheme of things, and what type of argument our coalition can make to really convince our university's administration that this is more than just a moral issue, it's a financial issue as well. Thank you. So, Premraj, the issue of divestment is complex, but I guess from our point of view, when you understand prosperity in human societies as solutions to human problems, it makes clear that every economic act, what we do economically, is an explicit moral choice. And if the thing that we have chosen to do is leading to a mass extinction event, then you probably shouldn't do it. And I think that every fiduciary everybody who's deploying capital on behalf of other people has a responsibility both to create returns, but equally to make sure that what they're investing in, what the folks are doing is, are, is actually solving human problems, not creating more problems than they're solving. Everyone who's deploying capital on behalf of other people needs to ensure that the, the people they're investing with are actually solving human problems, not creating more problems than they're solving. And the fossil fuel industry uh, definitely has been creating more problems than they've been solving. And we need to do everything in our power to encourage them to be better. And one of the best ways to do that is to refuse to own their stock. And I'd say one more thing. It's not just about not investing in fossil fuel stocks. It's about investing in renewables, that the money they're using to invest in fossil fuel stocks that are tanking is money they could have used to invest in wind, solar, and other renewables. And that's not just a moral choice, that is an economic choice. And clearly, uh, they made the wrong choice. So Dean from Australia writes, what do you think is the wage ratio of a healthy company and or nation? 10 to 1 or 40 to 1 or 100 to 1 or more differences in wage and salaries between lowest paid employees uh, to the CEO board, et cetera, including bonuses. I think this is a really interesting question that, you know, sort of gets to the heart of the question of unequal compensation. And, you know, again, the sort of market fundamentalist neoliberal view is that everyone is paid what they're worth. And if you earn $7.25 an hour, which is the, the United States' 
minimum wage, that is because that's all you're worth. That's all you produce for the company. And if you're the CEO of that company and earn $100 million a year in bonuses, salary, and stock options, well, that's because that's how much value you created. And the, again, the neoclassical construct basically validates that, but it's all nonsense. It's just a, a made up bunch of bullshit designed as a protection racket for rich people. But in terms of actual an actual number, he asked for a number, and I no. think and I think that and I think there's some numbers we can go to, and that is, you know, that report from the Rand Corporation recently came out on the upward redistribution of income from the bottom ninety percent, fifty trillion dollars over the past forty five years, two point five trillion dollars a year had inequality remained unchanged since 1975. Uh, median income would be twice what it is today. And I think we can go back to that period after World War II from 1947 to 1974, when everybody was uh, seeing their incomes rise in line with GDP. We had a lot more equity and equality in this country. And back then, CEO, that ratio of CEO pay to the lowest worker pay was between uh, 20 to 1 and 30 to 1, depending on the year. And now it's somewhere around 300 to 1. And yeah. more importantly, and this comes directly from the RAND report, the average in the top 1% back in 1975 earned 10 times what those at the 25th percentile did. And today they earn 42 times. Right. They earn seven times what the median worker earned. And today they earn 28 times. Yeah. But the broader point is that what people get paid is not a consequence of what they're worth. It's a consequence of how much power they have. Right. And definitely some of your power comes from being a rare contributor to an enterprise right? Like if you're very, very, very good at a particular thing that the enterprise cannot get away with out, uh, it is likely that you will be paid reasonably well. But, you know, like you said, Goldie, the economy of the United States of America in the last hundred years grew at the fastest rate when inequality was the lowest. Because... <laughs> When the middle class thrives, that's what drives yeah, that's right. what drives the economy. And so, again, going from a ratio of 300 or 500 to one back to a ratio of 20 or 30 to one uh, seems like a reasonable target and something that policymakers should strive for. Uh, Nick, our next question is from George from an undisclosed location. Okay. Thank you for this podcast. Please keep it going. I am curious, is there any data that points to the amount of money lobbyists spend to fight taxes on the wealthy and corporations? Would that amount be greater, less than, or equal to the amount they would just pay in taxes anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if only. Well, I, I think the answer to the question, Nick, is that they're spending the money. And they wouldn't be doing it if they weren't getting a return on investment. Exactly. And it's an astounding return, right? Because as much as lobbyists spend in the tens of millions or an aggregate hundreds of millions, the returns can be billions or even trillions. And we did a little research on this question. And, 
you know, the National Association of Realtors spent $22 million to fight for tax breaks in 2017. Business Roundtable spent $17 million. And the Chamber of Commerce spent $16 million. So in aggregate, what is that, $50 million bucks or something like that. But the tax cut was worth $1.5 trillion. <laughs> trillion. That's, so, that's a pretty uh, good return. An, an astonishing return on your investment. And this is the reason why it's so hard to fight these guys is that there's literally no amount of money that, you know, these guys can spend that doesn't make sense. So, so anyway, you add this up, uh, George, uh, the, the, the huge return on investment in 2014 alone, corporations spent a total of $2.6 billion on lobbying expenditures, more than the $2 billion we spent to operate the House and Senate together. So uh, yeah, lobbying's a bigger industry than the House and the Senate. And that's only a tiny fraction of the amount they got back from just one tax cut. And to be clear, it's, it's more than just tax cuts they're getting. It's also uh, regulatory decisions. For example, I don't know how much Sprint and T-Mobile spent to uh, get their merger through, but now we've got uh, just uh, three major cell phone companies instead of four, and you can be sure that your cell phone bills are going to go up. Hi, my name is Marshall, and I'm calling from Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, first of all, I love the podcast and this critical thinking it expires. I know, Nick, that you are a capitalist, so I'd really like to hear your response to this question. My company was started around 15 years ago and has grown to over 400 employees. It recently sold itself into an employee stock ownership plan. The founders split over $70 million in the sale. This seems like an overall virtuous move for my company, but it got me thinking in general about selling companies. The founders get a huge payout while the employees who have also contributed to the growth of the company to at least an order of magnitude get nothing and may even lose their job if deemed redundant in the case of a merger. Am I missing something here? How do you reckon with this huge split in winners and losers? You know, Marshall, I don't understand the details of what happened in your particular company. And, you know, if it was a sale that was broadly beneficial or not, certainly sometimes uh, when owners sell a company to the employees, that's a good thing. And sometimes they're, they're scamming them. So I, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't speak to that directly, uh, but I can speak directly to the second question, which is the owners split a whole bunch. The rest of the employees who also contributed get nothing. Uh, does that make sense? Is that fair? So it, it's a complex question, but it's made simpler in a world where employers are required to pay workers enough to lead dignified, secure lives, and where you got a pension, and you got health care, and you earned a fair salary, and it was big enough for you to have some savings, and in that way, uh, your work for that enterprise was fairly compensated. Now there's this other layer, which is that sometimes people who start companies make employees owners, and then the sale uh, can be more broadly shared. But I will tell you that at least it's been my experience. And this of course is also reflective of the downward pressure on wages for the last 40 years is that most workers would prefer cash over stock 
in compensation. Why? Well, because they can barely make ends meet. Of course, in a world where you're getting paid a lot better, uh, it's much easier to accept some compensation in stock. But the other thing that is going on here, of course, is that the reason that companies are so valuable today, the reason the stock market is so high, the reason those owners got such a big payout is that American style capitalism has become a scam in the sense that the owners get to extract all the value from the enterprise by paying their workers mostly shitty wages and keeping profits very high because workers have no power. So the workers get paid crappy wages for a long time. The owners get a high profit margin, which makes the enterprise worth a lot. And then they sell it and the workers are left uh, with nothing and the owners, you know, uh, laugh all the way to the bank. And and so I, I'm not sure that the answer is to require the founders of company to automatically share the value of the proceeds upon sale. But I am sure that every company should be required to pay their workers enough to get by and lead dignified lives. And in the other question, we referenced the the Rand report, right? Like this is a much less serious problem if the median full-time worker was earning today $100,000 a year, not 50. So I'd just like to add one more thought, Nick, and, and this is reaching back to a couple of our previous episodes. I know with Elizabeth Anderson, we talked about co-determination, the German model, where the workers actually have some representation on the board, some representation in how to manage the company, and in case of the sale of the company, some say in whether the company should be sold, who it's sold to, and uh, how this might be divvied up. And, you know, I think that would work very well here in America to at least have somebody there looking out on behalf of the employees. Yeah, Goldie, I totally agree. Well, thank you, all you awesome listeners, for your questions. We get so many more questions than we could ever answer, uh, but we do appreciate every single one. And I hope you will all keep them coming. Leave us a voicemail at 731-388-9334. You can also email us a question. Just go to pitchforkeconomics.com and use the contact page. Or you can go into iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and then ask your question in your review. And five-star ratings really help us reach more listeners. So help us, please. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.